this is Phoebe and we're Feminine Chaos. Phoebe, you have some exciting, what they always call personal news on Twitter, but it's actually, it is professional news. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's right. And it's, I feel like I see as many parodies of this as sincere such posts, like some personal news, I just had a cup of tea or something like that. <laughs> I don't know, that's too tame, it should be something sillier. Um, but yes, yes, I have... Um, Jobs, jobs, and jobs, and jobs, and many, and then some more jobs. Gobs of jobs. Gobs of jobs. I'm, I'm keeping busy. I'm keeping off the streets. I'm a new senior editor at the Canadian Jewish News. Um, I am not Canadian. I am Jewish. Um, I am a permanent resident of Canada, and I do live in Toronto. Yeah, nobody's perfect. You know, <laughs> working on it, but yeah, thus far, um, still American, but. Yeah, so I'm very excited about this. I am learning all about um, things Canadian Jewish I didn't know about, but also getting to think a little bit about my uh, late grandmother was from Montreal. So I know a little bit about this um, from my family. And that's, yeah, so really I'm thinking very sort of Canadian Jewish topics loosely defined. Like if I'm interested in it, it's Canadian Jewish to some extent. Because I'm, you know, the <laughs> avatar of all that's Canadian Jewish. But uh, yeah, yeah. So um, that's really exciting. I'm having a lot of fun thus far. And we're planning all sorts of new things there. And that's not all. That's not all. There's more. I am also a contributor columnist at the Globe and Mail, which is a large newspaper in a country known as Canada. God, all of this Canadian stuff you're doing, I'm starting to question your, um, I was about to say your commitment to Sparkle Motion, which is a deep cut from Donnie Darko, your patriotism. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To to have one Canadian job is a misfortune, to have two looks like carelessness. (laughs) (laughs) It can happen to anybody. You move to Canada and the next thing you know, you find that you're working in Canada. Yes. So that's, I think... um, that's my news. Um, Congratulations. And, well, thank you. Exciting. And Kat, I believe you also have a, a spot of non-Canadian news that That's is also true. exciting. Although my my news will be, the product of my news will be available in Canada and also in other countries. Uh, I'm not sure which, but, you know, <laughs> to be continued. Um, I have a new novel coming out. My most recent one came out just about exactly a year ago and actually released in paperback just this past week. Um, But my new book is a gothic thriller called You Must Remember This. And uh, it's interesting that you you mentioned grandmothers because this one, uh, this book is about a grandmother and a granddaughter. uh, And it takes place on the windswept coast of Maine's Mount Desert Island. It is a story of uh, a fractured family gathered for their matriarch's last Christmas. Her, uh, her name is Miriam Caravasios. She has dementia. When she dies, she's going to leave behind a $20 million fortune. So everyone is, everyone is together. Everyone is sort of at each other's throats. And on Christmas Eve, Miriam slips out of the house, walks out to the frozen reach, the uh, frozen cove, and falls through the ice and dies. And it is a terrible accident. Or is it? <laughs> so we round up the suspects in the living room, in the drawing room. <laughs> is there Poirot? Does Poirot? There is no. There's no Poirot. Oh, there's no Poirot. That's okay. When it's when it's serialized, because it's in Maine and it's windy, is everybody going to be wearing a good sweater? It's sort of an American version of Nordic noir. 
Now, I just realized as I'm sitting here, and it's much too late to do anything about this, but I don't talk anywhere nearly enough about sweaters in this book. And that's a missed opportunity on my part. That'll be for the TV show. It gives the wardrobe people more options because they can invent which sweaters. That's right. That's right. I, I, I did this for you, TV wardrobe people. I left it ambiguous so that you could be as creative as you want. Fly free. TV wardrobe people. <laughs> well, we're watching we're watching Shetland now, and um, and my husband noticed that the sweater that the detective is wearing in the latest season of Shetland is basically the same as one he has from Joe Fresh, which is basically like Canadian Old Navy. <laughs> so it seemed a little bit like you know it's a nice sweater and all, but like it's Shetland. Shouldn't they have you know knitted something more unusual, perhaps for this? Well, you know, speaking of sweaters and tops generally, should we? Should we plunge in? <laughs> there are two reasons why we're talking about this today. Uh, now, is this going to be peak feminine chaos? Is it getting a little nippy in here? This is a pendulous topic. It certainly is. There's a lot to get a- around. <laughs> it is It is more than a mouthful, for sure. <laughs> no. Um, so, how, how much longer can we keep this going? I think we could probably keep it going really long, and this could be the entire podcast. But to to prevent that from happening, um, boobs, boobs, <laughs> boobs. Um, as some of you boobs may have may have uh, caught on, and this is why uh, my being in Canada is so relevant here, because in Canada, you may not know this, but every single shop teacher, every single one in a high school, has enormous tracts of land sorry yes (laughs) you have to say you have to do it okay um sort of somewhat watermelon shaped but slightly more pendulous um a sort of impossible on something that isn't a a a, like a i assume plastic form gigantic fake not fake breasts like prosthetic breasts so yeah you've you've heard of the impossible burger these are the impossible boobs yes so a website that I had never heard of be called uh, Redux had um, this story that seemed just too ridiculous of where there were these pictures um, of a teacher who's a transgender woman. And we, this will will or won't be relevant to the story, although it is certainly relevant to how it's played out. Okay. Um, and she has... <laughs> It's really hard to describe. It's like sort of like, I, I mean, to say porn boobs doesn't even cover. It's like fetish boobs where they're like, they're not like large breasts of a woman who's had large breast implants or naturally large breasts. These are like. Can I just sum this up and just say giant rubber porno tits? That's what these are. But a little bigger <laughs> than what that would make you think. Like if you inflated those with some sort of pump. <laughs> right. It's like the, uh, what, what is it? What, what do they call it? The McDonald's extra large? Supersize. Um, yes. Yeah. These are the supersized version. Big of gulp. Giant. <laughs> big, big gulp. Giant rubber big gulp porno tits. Yes, exactly. And so this teacher, there are these pictures and I guess some video of her teaching in the classroom in very uh, thin material tight shirts such that this is not just sort of like, because, you know, there are, there are outfits that would make a physique like that natural or otherwise just look kind of maybe matronly or just sort of whatever, nothing particular. She's not in a muumuu, let's say. 
nothing is left to the proverbial imagination and so forth. So this obviously became a whole thing, you know, local gossip press, right wing press, everybody's, you know, up in arms about this. And because I am a fool, I wrote about, (laughs) I I made my (laughs) inaugural uh, column at the, not my first ever article for the Globe and Mail, I should say, but my first ever um, as a contributor columnist, um, about this story. So I wrote about it. And I guess the question, well, it, it raises questions, but it's not so, so obvious what those questions are. And there's pretty vehement, I have learned disagreement on not so much even whether it's a problem as like, well, well somewhat about whether it's a problem, but also why. So the school, as is, I think, pretty crucial here, is really defending the teacher and saying this is the teacher's right to gender self-expression. Teachers don't have the same dress code rules as students. This is, you know, it's a violation of human rights to tell this teacher not to show up looking like a pornographic cartoon. That's uh, that's one way to look at it. There are other ways to look at it too. Yeah. And uh, because for because people didn't really entirely always read my article, a lot seem to think that I am in favor of teachers showing up like this. And and you are. And I yeah. Uh, as long as as long as it's fifty fifty, and you have the equivalent um, sort of like a subway poll or whatever affixed to enough male teachers. A subway poll. I mean. Well, obviously, we'll put a photograph of this person in the show notes so that you can see what we are talking about. Um, but these rubber breasts are not just, it's not just a big bust. They're outfitted with these extremely protruding nipples. That they are. So there is something very explicitly sexually provocative about them. But also ridiculous, I think. Yeah. So what I'm what I'm just going to say is that the male equivalent of this is not just um like a big like package in the pants. It's tight pants and a wiener with a visible vein in it. That's what you need. Yes, that would that's true, but it, it's also making me think of a Benidorm episode as most things do where um there's this <laughs> man, he's this sort of like middle-aged to elderly Scottish prankster and he lifts up his kilt to reveal basically just like like a costume male genitalia that he's wearing like as underpants as one does isn't that what all the Scottish folks do as I understand it it's like a proud cultural tradition (laughs) of course and then he uh shortly shortly thereafter gets electrocuted while doing karaoke so (laughs) it's it's that type of uh episode but anyway so it's something like absurd so that's another thing like when I was thinking about this story I was thinking like I was putting myself in the place because a lot of people were like had very sort of understandably sort of think of the children type responses and I did I thought about what's it like to be in high school and like I'm trying to imagine if I were in high school or kind of get the sense that it would be more like this teacher's crazy and not like this teacher's the sex, you know, because I feel like there were teachers who people would find like sexually interesting as in they were attractive people, you know, and then there were teachers who were kind of like inappropriate, crazy. And this seems like in the inappropriate, crazy realm. And I don't get the sense that anybody is like, like, it, it clearly relates to sex. But I feel like the the kids in the class are probably like, 
Mr. So-and-so is now Miss So-and-so and is nuts. Yeah. So this story eventually made its way, obviously, to the American internet, um, because the boobs are so big that you can see them from here. (laughs) I ended up going back and forth a little bit on Twitter with someone who was very kind of think of the children and who said that this is inappropriate because it's designed to provoke a sexual response or it's going to provoke a sexual response. And I want to talk about that because I... I've thought a lot about this, thought as, as one does. Um, and I don't actually think that even pornographic boobs are inherently a turn on no matter the context, possibly to the person wearing them. But that's a different thing, which I also want to talk about. Yeah. Oh, definitely. We will discuss that, too. But that is a different thing. And I think that I'm, I think teenage boys, I mean, I'm sure they see giant boobs and like boobs. But at the same time, like. I suspect boobs attached to a teenage girl are of more interest to them or, you know, a a woman teacher maybe, but probably, you know, then somebody they knew until five minutes ago as a male teacher at their school. Well, it's not just that. Okay. So like there are, there are, I think, circumstances under which a male teacher could transition and be considered sexy by the teenage boys in the class. This is be not yeah. it. So this is the thing that I wanted to say. Like, it's I'm, I'm fascinated by these boobs because it's not just that they're pornographic, but it's that they're so prosthetic and they're so obviously prosthetic that like they're practically disembodied. And it's like, yes. if you, I mean, it's like if you saw a boob just rolling down the street, <laughs> not attached to anybody, like, would you be sexually provoked by that? Like, would you be turned on? I don't think anybody would, um, which actually is now making me think of that Woody Allen movie um, where the there's a huge boob roaming the countryside, like a it's like a Godzilla sized boob, yes, and they eventually yes. capture it in a bra. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I, I know well. What we need to find a screenshot of that. I can I can put myself on that. Yeah, it's uh, every everything you ever wanted to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask. Oh, that's the the one with the woolite. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but like the disembodied aspect of it is actually, I think, really interesting because it kind of takes me back to the way that these boobs are being worn and the reason that they look so obviously prosthetic. So, and this is also. Um, kind of ties into the gender identity aspect of things. So if you want to present as a woman, you want to be seen as a woman, you know, because you feel like a woman and you want other people to look at you and see a woman, you would wear your prosthetic breasts in the place where if you had boobs, your boobs would grow. Um, And that's not a hard thing to figure out. And yet uh, these boobs are being worn very low. They're being worn like below the belt line. And I think what's interesting about that is that it makes them look that much more obviously prosthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't make this person look like mm-hmm. a woman. But if your primary concern is looking down and getting a really good view of the contours of these boobs on your own body, and that's Ooh. why you're wearing them, because you like the way that they that they look on you, you want to see that because it like because it gets you going, you would wear them exactly like this because it gives you the best view of your own rack. <laughs> so then maybe that 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 would be interesting in terms of the, I, I think I see where you're going with this. Let me just put it like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, like, I, I don't have any idea what's going on in this person's head. I'm just, I'm totally speculating. But like, so I'm not saying this is a fetish. I'm just saying I certainly understand why people think it is. Like when you look at it, everything yes. about it. Yes. So yes. So my argument in this piece was, 
well, so there are kind of two levels to it. One is that I don't, I think it needs to be separated out to a degree. I mean, we, we can talk about like where it doesn't need to, where it can't be separated out, but the whole aspect of this teacher now identifying as a woman versus this teacher now wearing the watermelons to class. And I think, as, as we, I think we both noted actually in roundups today, that at a yeshiva, at a Jewish school in New York, um, a transgender teacher, um, also a woman, was fired, basically, it sounds like, for being transgender, or asked to resign, whatever. Um, so, like, there is a whole world of transgender people who are not, you know, wearing watermelons on their chest, right? Like, that is also, you know, important. And I think that a story like this... Uh, it, it's obviously fuel for the people who say, aha, this proves once and for all that transgender women are just men with a fetish for looking at their own breasts, right? And I think, I don't think that's the only reaction that people have had. And I think there've been a whole you know range, some that make sense, some don't. But I think it's important to like separate out whatever's going on there um, from what's going on whenever you know somebody who's a man realizes that they are a woman basically yeah so but the other thing that it made me think of and the reason I got kind of annoyed at it was I just kept thinking about how girls at school get in trouble for having you know like for being too curvy too young effectively you know and get told that they're violating a dress code because some skirt is shorter on them or a shirt is tighter on them then you know Whatever. And it's it's then humiliating for the girls because they're not trying to be sexual. That's just how they look. They've just hit puberty. Their clothing may not yet be up a size or whatever, you know. And there was just something about this that seemed about the story um, with the shop teacher that just seems sort of like like everybody's going to these pains to defend this teacher. And then here are all these girls who get, you know, who are inappropriately dressed whatever they wear because of naturally large or existent boobs. Yeah, it really makes a mockery of an experience that is, you know, very fraught for girls, even if you don't grow up to have, you know, a particularly big rack, the the thing where you, you know, suddenly your clothes are fitting differently and people mm-hmm. are looking. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel bad for the girls at this school basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what I in a like 5000 word version of this would have written about is that this really does, I think, get to the heart of like, where trans rights and feminism don't always mesh up. And I think the right to show up with enormous comical boobs that you want, and the right to be kind of left alone at high school with the breasts you've just got, whether you want them or not, uh, yeah, I think these are just different things. And it's not that there's no overlap. It's not that there are never, um, you know, cisgender women who have enormous breasts that they want to show off in a way that people might deem inappropriate. Obviously, that exists. But this seems like its own category of concern. If this is about trans activism, it's much, much more at the level of the school defending it, I think, than of this representing anything particularly commonplace. Yeah. The other thing too, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about what is the 
what is the root of the discomfort that people, including me, feel when we look at this person and we think about this person in a position of authority over like, not necessarily vulnerable young people, but young people, you know? And I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's just completely apart from everything else. It's this enormous, like egregious violation of a basic social norm that we all abide by kind of on the honor system to the point where it's really, it's distressing and really unsettling when somebody stops doing that. Um, and I mean, it's in that sense, it's kind of like, you know, if you showed up with just, just a little bit of poop smeared on your sleeve, you know, and we're like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this. And it's like, but, but why are you doing this? We don't, do that. And so the the willingness of this person to make other people very uncomfortable, I think, is the thing that makes it alarming. And then to imagine that you don't, I mean, you don't want a person like that around kids. You don't want somebody around kids who is willing to flout the norms to this degree in a way that is going to like make everybody else feel really weird. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think this is also like I'm thinking about just um, the sort of time honored role of the, uh, you know, gay or lesbian teacher who's kind of somebody like a safe place for kids who realize they're gay or lesbian to come out and talk to that teacher and get some kind of mentorship from right like that's a kind of classic role of a high school teacher, you know, and or younger even than high school potentially. Um, But this does not seem to be that. I feel like a gender non-conforming kid is not going to be like, oh, okay, I see a role model for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think an openly transgender teacher could have that role. This teacher, no. That's why I guess I got frustrated with um, some of the responses I got that were like, how dare you say she in reference to this teacher? And it's like, okay, there. I, I think that that's just a battle. I, I want to get into why I do say she. Because I don't think that's the problem. I think if this teacher were, you know, always a she from first ultrasound and womb on, whatever, um, then I would say it would be equally absurd. It, for various reasons, might be less likely to happen like this. And also it's unlikely that the school would leap to the defense in this way because there wouldn't be this whole uh, gender identity thing. It's if you're understood as a woman regardless of what you do you don't you can't claim that gigantic prosthetic breasts are um central to you being seen as a woman what is the what do you think are the odds though that this is actually like an anti-pc stunt zero okay although i mean the weirdness of it you know could open the door for it to be that i would be relieved for it to be that. And I think that's the reason why I, it's, it probably isn't that. I think this is just a person who, you know, who saw an opening to do something they really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, and now they're doing it. But how do, how do the children, like, I don't get the sense that this is, like, this is where I think also there's this kind of like, with the think of the children thing, I don't get the sense that this is somebody preying on children. I think this is more that somebody who's just like, has no judgment and shouldn't be around children due to the lack of judgment. Yeah, actually, that's an interesting thing. So one of the things that I keep seeing is that it's 
sexually predatory to involve people in your fetish without their consent. And that's a really, really complex thing to try to untangle. But I thought it might be interesting for us to talk about because like just spitballing for a second, if this teacher were a cross-dresser and were showing up to school secretly wearing a brassiere and panties underneath, and we're presuming the teacher in this case is still identifying as male, so under his clothes, he would be getting off on like, and they don't know, you know? So he's mm-hmm. involving he's involving the kids in his fetish the same way that this person presumably is with the giant prosthetic rubber boobs. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily a form of predation. I don't like thinking about it. It seems inappropriate, but I don't know that I would draw the line in that way because who's being harmed by it, you know? Well, Dan Savage has a lot on this about like, his example is always uh, the foot fetishist who works at a shoe store and is secretly loving the job more than is obvious (laughs) that basically (laughs) as long as you're not you know as long as the people you're involving don't know they're involved and have no way to know they're involved and this is all something that's happening in the fetish haver's head it really doesn't matter and then also like how could it matter because it's uh but but here especially this seems to be a case where like it's almost like obliviousness to the presence of of these teenagers rather than like, unless it's about exhibitionism, which is then the other question. And then I guess that's like, maybe that's more the issue is that whereas the secret, which could be anything, it could be, that could be just a woman in lingerie under her sort of dowdy librarian outfit, right? You know, like, oh, I mean, I think it's gross, but I guess I just, I keep coming back to that. I just can't imagine that high school students are feeling like scared by this i think it's more just probably oh our teacher's gone insane i doubt it's like influencing them so the whole groomer thing i can't imagine but then the question also like the involving people say okay well you know they are children right and like the standards different and you have situations where i mean famously this was a many years ago there was some teacher who had a picture on her facebook page of her having a glass of wine while on vacation in europe And this was like, unacceptable, a teacher drinking alcohol, you know, and you just think of like the standards there. And there there does seem to be like this bending over backwards here where it's like, the teacher kind of is getting to be inappropriate, and pretty shamelessly inappropriate, on a level that common sense says don't, you know, it just like, it doesn't make any sense, right? But that that the the reason this is even a question is because this teacher is trans. And let's say this teacher, just forget about the teacher being trans. Does it make sense? No, okay, that should just be problem solved. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it's not just on a level, but also in an environment. One of the things that's so egregious about these stories in which somebody digs into the private social media, like the private Facebook account of, of a teacher and finds a picture of her, you know, having a beer or wearing a bikini and she gets fired over it, is that, you know, you went looking for this stuff in her private life, whereas this teacher is not doing this in private. Exactly. So I have a hypothetical scenario that I want to put to you, see what you think about it. We were talking about the possibility of a non-transgender woman 
wearing something similar. And Blog Tio had such a, a link to such a woman with sort of Kim Kardashian plus curves who shows up to teach like that. Is that her body? It is though her body. Yes. Okay. So this is the thing that I was trying to imagine because I wanted I wanted to get it to a place where there was as much in common as possible with this teacher with the rubber boobs. Mm -hmm. So say a woman has had a double mastectomy because of cancer and she comes back and these are the prosthetics that she's wearing. This is what she wants. Mm -hmm. You know, this is how she still feels like a woman after surgery. What do you think the response would be to this? I think that this is one of these cases where my sort of, again, like going to sort of common sense as a guidepost or whatever is that would just plain never happen. It wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. And we all know that would never happen. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that that is, has ever happened. (laughs) I'm just going to say it's a wide (laughs) world, but I think it doesn't seem particular. It doesn't strike me, at least not that I'm the arbiter of this as transphobic to say that a particular phenomenon exists among trans women, perhaps, and not among cis women Without that meaning that it's commonplace among trans women at all, because clearly, like, I live in Toronto, I see plenty of trans women who walk down the street, I have never seen anybody um, look like this. (laughs) I don't know what to say. Um, Well, maybe, you know, you haven't seen it yet, but if you're really lucky... Well, I I haven't ever actually been to Oakville. I've only passed through on the train to Niagara once, so um, maybe I better hop off the train next time and check it out but the the falls the the hills the yeah the <laughs> mountains mountain range um yeah i i think that what would happen is like to me is almost like less important than the fact that this just plain wouldn't happen like i think i mean i got into this a bit in my column where i talked about like that you can get very sort of like philosophical about it and you know different types of fake breasts you know like whether yeah like reconstructed or enhanced or padded bra or just whatever you know but like this is just it's on such a different scale like this doesn't they don't look like breasts they just look like like sort of sex objects that don't have much in common I don't know and and I, I guess the question is like because there's this whole like awkward thing about like men whose fetish is looking like a sort of pornographic woman does admitting that that's out there have like I feel like there's unfortunately seem to be two teams that have divide like sort of formed on this where one team says that that doesn't exist and it's transphobic to say it exists and the other seems to think that that's all that it is to be transgender and I guess it seems like there's some sort of more sensible but somehow elusive position that's like, this is some people, it's not every single once he, him, now she, her person. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, and this is too much for us to get into on this particular episode of this podcast, but there are two spectrums here. You know, on the one hand, there are the transgender women who want to transition to pass as women because they feel like women inside um, and you know feel like they need that body. And then there's the autogynophilic, autogynophilic, I don't know how you pronounce that, trans women um, who, you know. Who teach shop in. Uh, who in... Teach shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yes. yeah. You know, without, without, you know, getting out over my skis here, um, I, would, I would guess 
that the shop teacher in Canada is a member of the latter group. Well, this is not somebody trying to pass as a woman. Right, right. Right. Well, I would say there's even a third category, and this is where it gets really nebulous and where I think I'm too woke baby for some. But then there are people who are gender nonconforming and don't want to pass and want to look like sort of either non-binary or just, you know, they want to have breasts and a beard and that's where they're going with it. And there's no sort of final destination where they don't have the beard anymore, whatever, you know? And I think there are people who see that and consider that inappropriate for children, or even like, as this in this Jewish school case, you know, a passing trans woman, but it's inappropriate, you know, to. Yeah. I mean, that was the result, at least in part of, of a, you know, somebody figured out that she had been born male yes. and embarked upon a, a kind of a ferocious campaign to ruin her life. So I'm not sure that actually it would have even been an issue. If- well, from from that story, it sounds like it wouldn't have. But I'm saying that, like, there is this sort of notion. So even to set aside somebody who passed, like, there's this notion that exists on the right that somebody's a groomer if they are sexually non-conforming or like gender non not sexually gender non-conforming if they have they're either gay or trans or just a man and something more feminine a woman and something more masculine that that's grooming and i think it's really important to like separate these things out and have it not be some whole new world where like if your teacher's like this doesn't mean that all of a sudden aha all the gay teachers are actually secret fetishists you know what i mean involving children in the you know like i think that's the problem is there is this whole movement and this whole obsession on the right that unfortunately the story feels like it sort of vindicates even though it just doesn't it just ah that's what's so frustrating about this and i feel like in defending the teacher it's sort of an insult to like all the normie gender non-conforming teachers out there. Yeah, I mean, I think that what what the right has identified is, you know, a handful of people who genuinely are, you know, behaving, I would say, inappropriately, not necessarily as groomers, but in a way that is sort of explicitly attempting to subvert parents. And they're talking about it openly on TikTok, um, you know, and and anytime one of them does this, it gets surfaced and it gets passed around. How ubiquitous is this? I don't know. But I think that even the notion that it is happening um, in, in this limited way suggests to people, probably incorrectly, that there's this like, giant secret roiling river of teachers underneath the radar trying to trans your kids behind your back and you know and it freaks them out and um because of the like kind of the aesthetics of a lot of these posts that go viral where a teacher is basically saying like if your parents don't accept your gender identity then i'm your new dad or whatever something you know something like that it's like you couldn't put you couldn't make something in a lab more perfectly designed to scare the hell out of parents so I understand why there is this fear. Um, I still think it's overblown. And I'm actually writing something about this from the perspective of um, what's going on in children's publishing. So I'm not going to scoop myself on that. I'm going to just Oh, say I can't wait to read that. There will be, there will be more to discuss. Good. Um, and speaking of publishing, we've talked about sex. Should we talk about violence? Yeah, let's do it. I'm ready. All right. The subject of this segment is a tweet, but it's also so much more than a tweet. Well, there are two tweets 
And you need the, you need the two. Who, do you want to read tweet number one or tweet number two? Uh, I'm going to read tweet number one because tweet number two is a response to tweet number one. Yes. Okay, you need ahead. to understand the context. So tweet number one is by a person named Aurelio Sanz. And it reads as follows. At least two award-nominated books this year are about very poor protagonists, but are written by authors who were never poor. Appropriating poverty for accolades is disgusting, and I don't know why we don't talk about this more. Okay. That's tweet number one. Tweet number two, Phoebe, do you want to do the honors? Certainly. This one is by Raven D., author in the making. I never had an alien from outer space stretch my anus wide enough to intake a watermelon and implant all sorts of their own research equipment deep in my ass. Does that mean I can't write it in any of my fictions since it never happened to me in real life? <laughs> okay. I'm just going to go ahead and say Raven is uh, Raven's an author. She's not an author in the making. That tweet is art. Well, yeah, it, it's it's the best tweet. It's certainly the best reply. Like, wait, where do you go from there? Like, come on, reply, guys. Pick up your game. That's, uh, yeah. Raven raises an excellent point. Um, although I did see somebody reply to this saying, if you haven't, um, if you haven't done, like, extremely violative ass play, then you shouldn't write that story because oh, you no. don't know what it's Oh, like. no. No, 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 no. We're not. <laughs> we're not doing that. No, I mean, we're not we're certainly not talking about that um, from the perspective of like you're sitting down for your author interview and they say, tell me about the origins of this book. And you say, well, I was lying on my belly with a watermelon in my ass. And I thought to myself, what if aliens? (laughs) (laughs) So this was yeah, it's, it's it's certainly a debate of sorts. It is and it isn't. So, well, that's why I say of sorts. And I was gonna, I was going to ask you, Kat. You've written about murder. Is that fair to say? It, it is fair to say. Do you feel that you are perhaps usurping the role in fiction in the in the fiction literary marketplace of real murderers? You know, I never thought about it that way. It seems like a risky proposition, right? You know, because if a murderer gets mad at you for writing about murder when you're not entitled to, what, like... Appropriating murderer cult. You're appropriating murderer culture. (laughs) And it's not, it shouldn't be your costume. Then do I get to, you know, become an authentic murder victim as a result? Like, how mad are these murderers at me for writing from the perspective of murderers? But I mean, this is the other thing is that, you know, many crime novels also involve writing from the perspective of a murdered person, you know, either. They, I mean, they may be alive at the start of the book, but they become dead over the course of it. This is true. And um, I mean, what of what of the corpses of murdered people that could be writing novels and are not? This is true. I mean, I think you make a good point, And I think we need to tell literary agents they need to sign more dead people and not posthumous writing, no, no, from the grave, full on. That's the only way. Representation. Yeah, this is this was a, a funny little glimpse into, like, there seems to be something where there's, like, writing, and then there's, like, r- the writing scene. And it seems like there's a writing scene that... I personally have no idea what's going on there, but it sounds pretty weird. It's like people who identify as writers 
who make up this scene. And then there are the people who are writing and they're too busy writing to participate in this scene, even if they wanted to, which of course they don't. Because the thing about a rule like this is that it is anathema to actually telling good stories. Yes, it also seems to be the product of, I guess this cuts, this comes up a lot, especially lately, maybe, but just in general of like, people who've never read anything trying to talk about books. And you just kind of hit this wall where it's like, if you're not familiar with any books (laughs) at all, you kind of get in this, like, you're thinking about this in the abstract. And it's like, people always are like, it's fiction, it's always made up, you know, (laughs) ah, it just, there's something kind of, there, there's some, I feel like there's some very basic point about what a novel is that just gets completely, completely missed. And I think the root of it is partly like if, you, if you've if you only ever read Social Justice Tumblr and you've never read a book. Yeah. So I was talking about this in the DMs with Lee Stein, friend of the pod. And one of the things that uh, we were talking about a little bit was that a lot of authors at this point seem to imagine that writing fiction is a form of activism or that it needs to be a form of activism, you know, that you're doing it wrong if you're not doing activism with your work. And I think that this is a more prevalent attitude in maybe less plot-driven fiction. Like, I'm I'm a crime novelist. Like, I, I'm never going to be under the misimpression that I'm doing activism when I'm writing, like, a horror story about somebody being murdered. But I think if you are more embedded in the sort of, like, very literary scene where work is imbued already with this sort of sense of great cultural importance and and it's not necessarily seen as being entertainment first and foremost that it is easy to get uh maybe a little bit of a grandiose idea about what you're actually doing when you sit down to tell a story mm-hmm. i mean i think this whole issue with the um with everything needing to be activism goes way i mean obviously i think we probably would both agree goes way beyond literature and i'm just thinking about the whole drama surrounding adam levine who the uh singer he has been accused of sending flirtatious messages to numerous women or whatever and this gets presented and like there was some tweet about like that this was being presented as like a me too real like assault type story when like all that's come out is that he was flirting with some people But I think that what's happened to certainly the gossip industry is whereas it used to be like, look at how bad this person is had, you know, how badly they're behaving, how bad they look, whatever. Now it's always presented as some kind of cause, you know, so somebody's going through a crisis. Oh, no, let's look at that. Let's talk about what that means. Somebody has behaved badly. Oh, no, let's talk about the various isms that are, you know, (laughs) represented here. And it just seems like, and I, I I should not, I, I'm guilty of this too. Like I see a teacher with gigantic prosthetic boobs and I feel this need to find meaning when even if my gut reaction is, well, that's pretty silly, you know? Like I think there's uh, something in our culture that really is like, but it's not just about finding meaning. It's about like that there has to be some kind of moral Yeah, well, I mean, it's like gossiping is a mean girl thing to do, and nobody wants to be a mean girl. We've come around to the idea kind of culturally that that's bad because it means you're a bully. But but gossiping is one of life's great joys. (laughs) I can't can't allow that to be taken from me. Um, 
so yeah, I, I think that maybe that that's the thing is, you know, here's something that's fun to do, but it's, it's not okay really to just have fun. So you need to find a way to position it as something noble. Yeah, but I think it's also like worse to be sort of sanctimoniously gossiped about than old school gossiped about. Because I think then like suddenly it becomes that like this Adam Levine is this villain, you know? Sure. And then there's this sense. Well, I mean, once you once you go down the road of saying we're not gossiping, we're holding him accountable. Well, accountability, you know, involves consequences usually. So, uh, yeah. So then there's this sense that like. It's not just that he did this and, and it's interesting and we're going to talk about it. It's that he did this and he must pay. Yes. Well, I mean, I was fascinated by the Adam Levine story because I stumbled across an article about what, like, all of the allegations. And it's very, like, the language being used for this is very, like, brave women came forward to say that they received flirtatious messages <laughs> from, like, like, oh, God, the trauma. But the best one was... Um, this account from him, when I say best, I don't actually mean best. It's like, it's a, a horrible story, but the way that it's positioned is fascinating to me. Um, it's from his former yoga teacher. This is on her Instagram story. This is about Adam Levine. She wrote, one day he texted me saying, I want to spend the day with you naked. I was in the bath, but my jealous ex saw it and went into a rage. I assured my ex that I was sure it was meant for Adam's then-girlfriend, Becky, and was a mistake. I texted Adam to ask if that was the case, but Adam didn't reply, and my ex became violent, breaking my wrist. This entire incident and its aftermath is positioned as though it is Adam Levine's fault. You know, mm-hmm. this, woman, this woman's broken wrist at the hands of her angry, jealous ex, who was violently, physically abusive to her. Adam Levine did this. This this idea of assigning responsibility for anything that happened to you, even in the vicinity of receiving a text message from Adam Levine <laughs> to Adam Levine. It's like, you know, God forbid somebody gets struck by lightning after he texts them because that's going to be also his fault. It, it does seem like a reach to me. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I learned about the story at the dentist um, where it was uh, carved into my teeth. No, uh, where the- I was like, Did you have a cavity? Did Adam Levine text you and <laughs> you having a cavity? Because that would be his fault. I did not for once have a cavity, but I did. Uh, I was watching what's like the Canadian version of The View and they were talking about it. And I had thought it seemed like perhaps subtly or maybe even not so subtly anti-Semitic where there was one of the, um, I want to say contestants. Do you call them panelists, participants, uh, ladies? Hosts, co-hosts? Hosts, that's the word. Thank you. Thank you. Contestants, what are they trying to win? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Giant set of prosthetic boobs. It's Canada. So so one of the uh, hosts was saying that, you know, he comes from a lot of money. So, you know, and it's like, what is this? So what? So he, I don't know. It just seems so ridiculous. I guess, uh, I don't know. I, I don't have any, I don't know what Adam Levine sings or how much, if any, money he actually comes from. Nor have you been the recipient of any text messages? No, not a single one. Well, that's stingy of him. Yeah. Oh, 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 (laughs) getting the ADL. (laughs) Yeah. So Adam Levine. Yeah. Yeah. But but to return to the the topic of this tweet about um, protagonists matching the identity of their authors, Adam Levine should not write a song about being poor, apparently. 
No, no, he shouldn't. I'm just thinking that I, the last time I saw him, like, not like personally, but he was on television, he was in a, a memorable, brief but memorable scene in American Horror Story where he is having sex with a woman in an abandoned mental asylum. And he does this, he does this move uh, as they're getting busy that at the time, and I'll put a gif of this in the show notes or whatever, so that, you know, everyone can see what I'm talking about. Um, but at the time, because he, I think had not yet been deemed problematic and, and in need of canceling the image of him doing this thing drove the internet just collectively wild. It was like everybody's pants just dropped spontaneously. I have no idea what this was, but I will, I will check out the gif. I'm going to try to find it and I'm going to try to drop it into the into the chat here so that you can see it. All right. I, I want to see this in real time. I want to see if my pants drop just thinking about it. Let's see. Let's see if I can just drop this image directly into our chat. Okay. I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting. Hmm. Really? This, this is just really? <laughs> yeah. So I guess the fact that he licked his fingers first is, uh, you know, all that it took. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, nah, not for me, but okay. Anyway, yeah. Well, that's that's very anti-Semitic of you. That's the only possible <laughs> explanation. Yeah, yeah, but the the representation issue, though. What's what's interesting, I think, or maybe not interesting, but revealing. I think that this is sort of the the heart of what's actually happening in this tweet. Is the second? Well, first of all, it's the part where the books are award nominated, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's the second part where Aurelio Sanz says appropriating poverty for accolades is disgusting. Okay. I have a feeling that Aurelio Sanz grew up poor possibly, or has at least experienced being poor in a way that he imagines these authors have not. And that basically this is the why not me syndrome. Oh yeah. If you scratch the surface of virtually any agitation over this idea of like appropriating experience that doesn't belong to you about the need for quote own voices. It is never actually about what an author owes to readers or what they owe to their story. It is all about what is owed by the universe to the person who is upset that they didn't get to write the thing that is winning the awards. Exactly. It should have been them. Exactly. I mean, it's it's the Lena Dunham thing constantly repeated itself again and again and again, where something seems too easy. Surely it could have gone to anybody as if it's just like the universe grants certain people. I mean, obviously, it's easier for rich people to, you know, all things equal. Right. You know, like if you don't have other work obligations, you know, however, plenty of writers have had day jobs, have done all sorts of different other work. You know, it's not like novelists are exclusively people who only ever wrote novels to make money. And also, I guess just this question of what does it mean? Like, this is the thing, not to get too sort of like boringly practical about this, but novels have multiple characters generally, and (laughs) you're going to have to be appropriating some of them because you can't be all, you know? Yeah, the rules, insofar as the rules exist and have any actual rhyme or reason to them, the rules are that you should only write prospective characters whose experiences or identity you share. But of course, 
nobody shares every experience and identity characteristic with even their protagonist. And we always talk about this, and it always comes back to this, that once you go down this road, you can slice it into infinitely tinier categories until there's nothing left to an author except the life they have literally lived. Um, And that's very, very boring. It's boring, but I think it's also almost like a privacy violation. It's like you can't make things up. It's like you have to tell about your own life. It is also sort of an imperative to share, which you might not want to do, right? Like maybe you just don't want to write about yourself because you want privacy and, you know, and want to separate these spheres. There's your life and then there's stuff you've made up, you know? Like, wouldn't that be another whole angle to this? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, this idea that, you know, authenticity derives from personal experience and that also authenticity is kind of like the knee plus ultra of what you want out of a book or out of a story. I think that's actually a relatively new idea. And I think in some ways it was sort of reverse engineered to serve this desire to to narrow the playing field, to disqualify people on the basis of identity in order to diversify the landscape. Because in fact, authenticity and being engaging are not necessarily the same thing. You know, you can write a story that is very authentic, that is informed by real experience, and it can be bad and boring as hell because you're not a good storyteller. And that's sort of, this is a mean sounding thing to say, but I think frequently it is people who are not particularly gifted at writing or gifted at storytelling and are not imaginative who fall back on this idea of authenticity being the thing that's most important because they have that, you know, or they can get that, whereas it's a lot harder to just become great at storytelling if you're not a good storyteller. Yeah, yeah, I I think that that makes sense. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I do think this comes back to this idea of writing as like jockeying for position in a field rather than writing as producing work. Yeah, that makes sense to me too. Well, I strive to make sense. <laughs> Which that's just my way of saying like, I have nothing further to add. I think that that, that about does it. Um, do you have anything else to say about? Well, so you may notice that, yes, I have something to say. So uh, you may notice that I have a headshot um, for my columnist role and that it ends at like the shoulders right? Because a headshot. Mm-hmm. You think that's just because it's a headshot, but it is actually to obscure what's below, which is... <laughs> Giant rubber porno tits. Absolutely. You you fill this in. Yeah. Maybe this is the solution, is that you can have the biggest rubber boobs that you want, but you just have either, you know, you can only ever take pictures from the top of the shoulder up, mm-hmm. or if you're in person... You have to wear a cardboard box over your body with a cutout for your head or for your face (laughs) so that nobody can see what's going on below the neck. So is that like like the new masking? Yes. They could use some of the equipment for some of the PPE that's not being used now could be channeled to that purpose. Yeah. Your boob obscuring box protects me. My boob obscuring box (laughs) protects you. (laughs) Picture some sort of like giant bra made out of N95s and the elastics covering the nipples. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, well, this has certainly been Feminine Chaos. If you have enjoyed listening to this free public edition of Feminine Chaos, you should consider subscribing to Feminine Chaos uh, on Substack. 
you can find us at femchaospod.substack.com, where for $5 a month or $50 a year, you will get access to premium content that's Ooh. just for our paid subscribers, including episodes where we're, um, if you can possibly imagine this, even more off the cuff and, uh, <laughs> and candid than we were today. This is true. <laughs> All right. Well, this has certainly been Feminine Chaos. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye. Bye.